Welcome to the Pastor's Cut. This week we're on with Rafe Chenery, pastor of Park South Loop, and talking about what got cut from his sermon on Acts chapter 9, including stones of remembrance, understanding our conversion stories, as well as a listener question on baptism. And so if you have any questions you'd like us to discuss on an upcoming episode, you can go ahead and send those into us at podcast at parkcommunitychurch.org, or just drop a comment wherever you happen to be listening. So thanks so much for joining us. Let's get started. I'm Trevor Lovell, and this is The Pastor's Cut with Rafe Chenery. Rafe, man, thanks for making the time this morning. Yeah, always good to be back with you, Trevor. Yeah, yeah, good to have you. Good to have you on the show. We had uh, quite the passage this past weekend, Saul's conversion. I know. <laughs> You're like, uh, at, you know, the good thing about studying Acts, actually, is almost every passage is quite the passage. It go, It's like one major moment in the life of church history to another but yeah the conversion of Saul is kind of a big deal it's it's uh it's a defining moment of the last 2000 years of church history yeah yeah absolutely and even like seeing that so much of the new testament was written by him and this was the turning point in his life sometimes i wonder if he had the chance like what it was like for him to read this chapter you know in his lifetime if it uh, like how that kind of stirred with him what that was what that experience was like yeah well, he tells his own story. I mean, in his sermons, he goes back and tells the story a couple more times and the, the details of it. Mm-hmm. And he's always given little backgrounds about his own faith. And so, yeah, his testimony was a huge part of his life. Actually, that's something I brought up in the sermon, not jumping ahead of us. But yeah. I feel like just the fact that Paul regularly appealed to his own testimony um, of just saying, look, this is what the Lord did in my life. This was my background. This is what the word of God is saying happened. And this is what my experience was. Um, it's just good good reminder for us to always be carrying our testimony with us, prepared to share our own faith because it's important. James yeah. Lines. yeah. And even like the elements you said there, like the, our own story, our own testimony, right? The, the experience we had, but then reading that in light of scripture and, and kind of bringing those two sources, our experience and then scripture to be able to interpret it, to understand right. the conversion. Well, exactly. I thought you did a good job of bringing that out. Um, but before we get to that, before we get to that, uh, I wanted to ask you because so uh, every follower of Jesus has a conversion story, right? And in the same way, every pastor, uh, for the most part, has like a, a call to ministry story. Um, and so I know that yours actually happened in the, like, as you were just fully engaged in the, in the life of uh, Park Church, uh, Lincoln yeah. Park, I want to say. Could you, could you just share some of that, uh, what, what that story was like for you? Yeah. Oh, man. So Charles Spurgeon, uh, when he talks about having a, a calling to vocational pastoral ministry, he talks about an inward calling and an outward calling. And the inward calling is this, um, what he describes it as, this inner longing that you can't, you cannot stop like this desire inside of your heart to preach the gospel. Like it has to happen somehow. And then the external calling is your church coming around you and confirming what you're feeling in your own heart and between you and the Lord and giving you an external call to say, yes, we see it, we see the gifting, and then we're going to call you into the ministry. And, um, and that's stuck out to me. I think that's from um, lectures to my students by Charles Spurgeon. Mm-hmm. But my story was, you know, I was in corporate America. Uh, I graduated IU, Indiana University in 2007. I spent a year overseas as a missionary and uh, I had a business degree from IU, IU, had a love for ministry. I mean, I'd done a lot of I, I came to faith in Jesus right before college. So college for me was like learning what is this word ministry? And <laughs> it was just, a, I just felt like a kid in a candy store learning so much in four years of college. 
I went overseas. I was in Thailand. Loved my time in Thailand. Incredible season of seeing the Lord do amazing work. Um, but when I came home from Thailand, I took a job in the corporate world and ended up staying there for five years. Had a project management, tech consulting. Um, yeah, led a big team over at this company I was in. It was, it was great work. I loved what I was doing. Um, but what I started doing is I started taking seminary classes at night at Moody. Um, I'm married to my wife uh, shortly after I got back from Thailand. And we were just like, man, we have the time. Uh, we, we have the money to kind of get us through seminary right now. Like, and this is something I want to do. I want to study the Bible. And I, at the time, I remember thinking, I don't know how the Lord's going to use this. Maybe it'll be in some kind of pastoral thing one day in the future. Um, if not, I'll be a well-equipped elder at my church one day, Lord willing. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. like worst case scenario, I just know a lot more about the Bible, which is what I love knowing about. So uh-huh. let's just go. Um, and what happened was as I was teaching or as I was learning at Moody, I would just come home and, and what Charles Spurgeon describes as that inner calling, it was just growing and growing. I, I was just coming home at night from classes to Sarah and just saying, man, Sarah, I can't contain this. Like I, I have to teach this. I have to share this. Um, but trying to wrestle through being content where I was. And I loved my job. That's the other thing. I, I really enjoyed business and uh, I was good at it and it was fun and it stirred my mind. But this, this inner longing was growing. And then um, what happened was I, one night I read this biography from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's Eric Metaxas's biography. Great, great, great book. Changed yeah. a lot about me. Bonhoeffer was a World War II German theologian who stood up to Nazi Germany and uh, stood up to Hitler. Uh, and, you know, when you read Bonhoeffer, which I like to make a habit of doing, <laughs> you get some Bonhoeffer blood flowing in you. It's like, man, like, I want, if I have to stand up to Hitler, I'm going to do it kind of feeling like, like what you got, God, like I'm, I'm in, I'm all in. And mm-hmm. I finished this book about two in the morning, couldn't put it down. And uh, I just kind of weepily said a prayer to the Lord. I'm like, Lord, I think I'm being faithful. Like I, as far as I can tell, I'm where I, I ask you regularly, send me where you want to send me. But like, I'm here. If you call me back overseas with my wife, like we're gone, like we'll go. Yeah. If you call me to stay for the next 50 years at my company, like I'm in, like, I, I just want to be faithful, whatever you got. Yeah. So that was a Saturday night after midnight. <laughs> a few hours later, I was on the connection team with Joe Riccardi at, uh, at Lincoln park where I was just serving. I was, I think I was a deacon at the time at, at Park Lincoln Park, and I was serving on the connections team, setting up the Bible tables on Sunday morning, and uh, greeting people. And Joe and I had never talked about this. I knew Joe; we weren't necessarily close friends at the time, like we are now. But um, he knew I was in seminary. But uh, yeah, it was just a few hours after that prayer. I went into church, was setting up the Bible table, and then Joe Riccardi <laughs> walks up to me and says, "Rafe, I don't know why, but I think it's time you quit your job and come on staff with Park." Yeah, <laughs> it was one of those. Oh, like, man. I just prayed like, Lord, here's my heart. Do with it what you will. And um, slowly, that was the beginning of recognizing Park's external calling, mm-hmm. matching my internal calling that I was feeling in my heart. And it took about six months for my wife and I to kind of wrap our brains around this major life change. Um, yeah. but about six to seven, eight months later, I started uh, over at Park in a pastoral role. And mm-hmm. yeah, that was eight years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. That, like the timing of, you know, finish the book Saturday night, like in praying that prayer. And then 
the very next, like not even like 10 hours later, you're having that conversation with Joe. Uh, Yeah. It it was one of those, you know, there's some moments. I I hate, I, I don't think our faith has lived in mountain peak moments. I think our life has lived in the day in, day out. But I think the Lord and his kindness gives you mountain peak moments as rem- reminders. And um, by God's grace, I've had a number of them. Actually, to be honest with you, I, I had one um, just a few weeks ago while I was in the middle of preaching. The Lord just took my breath away, uh, almost lost it and didn't recover. Um, separate story for another time. Yeah. Uh, but we have these moments where the Lord is just very clear and shows himself and um, confirms his promises in your life. And you cling to those. You remember those in the hard seasons. And um, that one, that, that moment for me, when Joe said that was just, it took my breath away. I was like, Oh wow, Lord, <laughs> I wasn't ready for that, but okay. You're being very clear right now. Yeah. 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 No, that's awesome, man. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Um, and speaking of those kinds of moments, you leaned into that with your sermon and, and talking about how our conversion is, is one of the most significant of those types of moments. Um, so you preached this past weekend at, South Loop and Bridgeport and uh, preached in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31. Mm-hmm. Could you give us a, just a recap of your sermon? Yeah. Um, what, I got 40 minutes here. Is that right? Yeah, about that. <laughs> uh, all right. So the recap is this. Basically, in Acts chapter 9, you got Saul's conversion. And if you remember correctly, Saul is the, the Jewish Pharisee who was persecuting Christians. So in Acts chapter 6, after Stephen is martyred, the first Christian martyr of the Christian faith, uh, we're told that Stephen was, or Saul was overseeing that. And in Acts chapter 9, Saul's on his way to go persecute more Christians and gather them up. He's got a little army with him, and they're going to go bust into house churches, and they're going to go take every Christian they can and bind them and drag them down to Jerusalem for whatever their fate would be. So he had set his life up to try to crush what, what Christianity was. It was called the way at the time. And then you have this moment uh, on the road, on the Damascus road. He's headed to Damascus and uh, the Lord appears to him and blinds him. And um, and essentially there's this moment in Saul's life where he realizes he's persecuting the one true God. He, he's persecuting the followers of the one true God and that he's wrong and that the Christianity is correct. And the Lord really stops him. And so what this is really the chapter is Saul's conversion story. And the heart of my sermon was to say, while... While this story is unbelievably significant in the history of the church, the, you know, the, the conversion of Saul is a very unique conversion and has all kinds of importance with it because he's Saul. He wrote a lot of the New Testament. He helped mm-hmm. plant churches all around the Mediterranean in the first century. Um, while it's unique, it's also not unique. And all the basic elements that we find in Saul's conversion story are true of every Christian's conversion story. And so I wanted to show what was his story, but then also at, I had kind of five key moments, kind of brought those key principles back to us and said, look, his story is ours when you boil it down to a principle. And you and I were just chatting a minute before. Why is this important? I opened up my sermon with a, a, a quick story out of the book of Joshua. Um, and it's these it's a story that uh, is highlighted by these stones of remembrance. So Joshua and the... The folks are coming out of uh, their wilderness years, leaving the Exodus. God uh, helps them cross the Jordan River as they're going to go take over the promised land. And they cross cross on dry ground. And right as they're crossing on dry ground, and they're looking back over the last 40 years of wandering through the wilderness, they're about to head into the promised land, and they know they have a hardship in front of them. The Lord instructs them to set up these stones of remembrance in the middle of the Jordan. 
And the purpose of these stones is 12 big stones that they put in the middle of the Jordan River. And the purpose of putting them there is so that for the next generation and the generations after that, anybody who looks backwards at that stones can say, look at what God did in our life. Mm-hmm. I see those stones. That's a testimony that we crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. And we always remember, like, God's been faithful. Mm-hmm. And so the structure of the sermon was basically, we have these stones of remembrance in our life. And our conversion story is one of those. And if we look at these five elements of Saul's own conversion, we'll find that those are actually five stones that we can always go back to and be like, this is what God's done in my life. Yeah. And it's important for us for being a, a witness to everybody around us. So that's big picture, yeah. kind of mm-hmm. where I went with it. Yeah. What, what were some of those, uh, those five pieces? Yeah. So, um, so I'll start with the first, I'll spend a bit more time in the first one and kind of go a bit quicker through the other ones. Yeah. The first one, uh, what was the exact language I used? Let me pull it up here. The, the first one basically said that, um, we were, our, we were hostile enemies of God. Yeah. Um, now that I think to a lot of modern hearers is very confusing. Uh, and, and really when you look at Saul's story, he clearly was a hostile enemy to the Lord. He was persecuting Christians and killing Christians, yeah. uh, binding them. And so it's easy to see how Saul was a hostile enemy to the Lord. Yeah. Um, it's a little more difficult to see how we were hostile enemies to the Lord. At least, you know, I, I take that back. Some people's testimonies, <laughs> they, they're very clearly hostile enemies to the Lord, right? Yeah. I, I think in a lot of modern Western Christianity, um, for some folks, it's harder for them to wrap their brains around. Wait, you're telling me I was a hostile enemy to the Lord? Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of Western Christians, we think of our story in terms of, wait a second, I was a general, you know, I was okay. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, killing people. I, I wasn't... Yeah. Um, you know, you name the terrible sin that people think of. And I was seeking after God. And really what we think of is we found God by our own effort. Here mm-hmm. we were, we were decent people and we needed God. So we went out and found him and now we found Christianity and now we have our life together. Yeah. And my first two points are saying, no, let's, let's actually get the story straight and know your own story and what the Bible says about it. Mm-hmm. You are not a pretty good person who lar- largely had your life together. The Bible's clarity is that you were a hostile enemy to the Lord. And that you would set yourself up on a complete uh, rebellion to who God was and what he had called you to in your life. Yeah. Um, so there's a number. Let me see. Why can't I not pull my sermon up here? Mm-hmm. See, this is why I don't want to switch my systems that I'm using. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, um, no, there's I a number of important passages here that we could go over. Yeah. Uh, first of all, we think of, um, gosh, hold on. Mm-hmm. I can't pull it up. Well, it's over now. I'll never be able to pull it up. Um, but all through the New Testament, we're told that we were, for example, in the kingdom of darkness, and we've been transferred into the kingdom of light, um, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, all has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We think of Ezekiel and the valley of dry bones, right? Like we, the, the story of the Bible is that we were actually completely dead. We were hostile to God in rebellion to him. In fact, Ephesians 1 says, that we were, before we were Christians, we were servants of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. And that language strikes us so, like, how could it be that extreme? Mm -hmm. But I think until we actually wrestle with those verses and understand what our condition was before Jesus saved us, we don't fully understand our own salvation. So step one is recognizing we were not morally neutral people who needed a little bit of Jesus in our life. Mm -hmm. We were hostile enemies and rebels to the one true king. 
Jesus yeah. Christ. And we were on a road to establish ourselves as our own God mm-hmm. in idolatry. Uh, and it was then, it was then that God moved towards us. And so the second stone is that we didn't take the first step in our own salvation. Jesus took the first step. Yeah. And, and he drew us to himself, just like Saul. So Saul, Saul was not like trying to knock on the door and figure out like, uh-huh. man, I really want to know you, Jesus, help me. He was, <laughs> yeah. he was trying to sponge Jesus. But what's interesting is like, you can see how you can misinterpret this when you look at just, if you just purely take it from your experience and you don't, if you don't look at it through the lens of scripture, because even Paul, you, you mentioned this, he was doing what he thought was right. Like he thought, you know, I'm serving, I'm serving God by getting rid of this threat to, to Judaism. And then he finds out on the Damascus road, like it's the exact opposite. He's, he's not serving God. He's in direct rebellion against God. And Yes, you you can see with that how if we just look at our lives through our our own experience, you can miss that. Um, And yet it's, I I like how you dug into the importance of not just interpreting through the lens of scripture, but like why that matters, um, why it matters to understand our conversion correctly. Uh, Yeah, because most people, right, if you look at the world around us, I'm going to go, I'm going to jump into some kind of cultural context here for us. If you look at the world around us, most people think they're pretty good people. There's any number of social justice causes that you can jump on that make people feel like I'm on the right side of history. I'm doing r- the right things. I'm, I'm, I'm the, uh, this is godliness. But the reality is until you're submitted to Jesus Christ, you are an enemy of the king and your life is set up in rebellion to him. Um, and that's hard for us to grasp, um, but it is the biblical worldview and we need to recognize that. And once you do, you look back on that stone of remembrance and you have this awe, like this is what should take over you. When you realize you were an enemy of God in whatever your condition was before you met Christ, yeah. then when you think that Jesus saved you from that by going to the cross for you, then there's this breathtaking wonder at the cross and what it means and what, what's happened in your life as a result of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The good news is made greater by the bad news that sets it up. Right. Yeah. Good stuff. Right. Um, so that, that second one, the Lord, the Lord moves first, not us. So no one can save themselves. So even in my story, like I, in my own conversion story, I remember I prayed a prayer one night in the middle of, you know, I was as far away from the Lord as anyone could be. And I prayed this prayer, God, if you're real, whoever you are, I have no idea who you are, but save me. Like, like, tell me who you are. Like I'm, whatever I'm doing right now is totally empty. I, I if you're real, rescue me from this. Yeah. And for my story, if I just tell that part, it sounds like I took the first step. I prayed a prayer and then God responded to my seeking for him. Yeah. But the biblical reality of what was taking place is I could never have even prayed that prayer. I, I was it's mm-hmm. such a rebel to God that that prayer was impossible apart from the Lord first moving inside of me and drawing me to himself. Yeah. So it's God who always takes the first step. And, and when, once you get that, it really changes the way you talk about your own conversion because... You know, we can talk about our own conversion that actually highlights our works and yeah. highlights how good we were that we could find God. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not. It's, you know, no one's justified by works. It's the Lord who works first yeah. on our behalf. That's good. That's good. And so you had plenty of, you had plenty of great stuff within the sermon itself. But, but what got cut? Um, well, again, we were talking about this. I, I mentioned one time in the sermon <clears throat> when the Lord's calling Saul, um, he, he looks to him and in verse three, verse four, falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And um, there's an interesting study you can do if you look at throughout scripture, the different times where God repeats someone's name like that. So Saul, Saul, he calls it twice. Why are you persecuting me? Um, and that's just a worthy study. I spent, I didn't spend as much time as I would have liked to it in the, in the sermon prep, but a, a little bit just kind of looking at a few of the spots in the Bible where that happens. And it's at these critical, largely it's these very critical moments in people's lives where the Lord is doing something drastically new um, and, and important for the future. And it's this turning point. So Saul, Saul, why would he say it twice? He's getting his attention, obviously, but it's also almost like hammering in, like um, it's hammering in like you, like I'm speaking to you right now. And what I'm doing is in your heart and I'm going to fix this situation. Um, And so there's a few of them. I'll I'll go through a few of the other ones in scripture right now. But again, just like I did in my sermon, I'd encourage folks to go look these up on your own and kind of do a, you know, a Saturday Bible study on these. Mm hmm. Um, in Exodus chapter three, verse four, um, it's Moses, uh, beside the burning bush. And it says, when the Lord saw that he, Moses turned aside to see, to see the burning bush, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Hey, here I am. I mean, what a turning point moment in this guy's life. He's been, you know, this is a guy with an identity crisis who's now, I think, was Moses 80 when this happened? Yeah, yeah. I want to say he's 40 when he flees from Egypt, yeah. and he's, he's in Midian for 40 years, and then this takes place. So people forget this about Moses because we remember the Prince of Egypt movie, and we think of him as like a 23-year-old guy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Moses had lived a lot of life. Yeah. And when he's 80, the Lord says, Moses, Moses, and, and literally does something brand new in his life. Um, another example would be with Abraham, Genesis chapter 22. Um, this is when Abraham has taken his son, Isaac up on the mountain. He's about to kill him, uh, because the Lord was testing him. He says, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said to him, here I am. By the way, whenever you see the word angel of the Lord in the old Testament, Mm -hmm. it's a good chance that's the pre-incarnate Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Which is also, it's another fascinating study. That's another fascinating story. Most of the times it's, it's Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ appearing. But again, he says, Abraham, Abraham. I mean, what a turning point. Again, Abraham's old at this point in his life, very old. Um, and this is a moment where Abraham is being put through this test, not to see what he's made of. The Lord already knew what he was made of, but to seal something in Abraham's own heart about what his faith is in and who this God is. Um, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. Uh, a couple more. Genesis chapter 46. It happens with Jacob. Uh, this is later on in Jacob's life. It's after he's been, you know, this, the, to me, the big conversion moment for Jacob is when Jacob wrestles with God. I think up until that point, he's, he's a pretty major punk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's like, he's this uh, kind of snarky attitude prankster who does what he needs to do to get by in life. Yeah. Um, and he's kind of a mama's boy. <laughs> well, he kind of he's like all these like things all combined in one. And then he wrestles with God, yeah. and God leaves him scarred from it. Literally, he breaks his hip in the process. And I think that that's a for us. I think that's really his conversion. This moment where he really turns and says, "Okay, this is what my life's about." And shortly after that, uh, it says God spoke to Israel in a vision of the night and said, "Jacob, Jacob," and he said, "Here I am." And again, it's this, this, this moment of Jacob establishing this new life and who he's going to be and who he was looking backwards, who he's going to be in the future. Um, happens with Samuel, happens with Martha. 
So long story short, it's a good Bible study. Um, but what do you take out of it beyond just the way that God calls people twice with their name? I think there comes moments in our lives where God really wants to get a hold of you and do something brand new. Um, and for a lot of these folks, they were old, <laughs> 80 years old, 100 years old. Yeah. And God's not done with them. He's really forming something brand new in their life. And it's a turning point. And, you know, the great thing about, you know, if you go back to that Moses passage, Exodus chapter three, verse four, when the Lord saw that he turned aside, like Moses turned aside, he saw the burning bush. He was ready to actually hear from the Lord. He walked towards it. And once he had done that, once he had gone to that place where the Lord was drawing him, the Lord spoke out to him. And it's in some ways a call for us just to be listening, to be prepared. Like God's not done with anybody. God's got incredible stories yet to write in our lives, even if we're 80 plus 100 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, God can do something new and we never have it all figured out. And so, yeah, that was a good little part of the story just to kind of mm-hmm. focus on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Man, good stuff. So uh, we do have a listener question to kind of round out our time today. And okay. uh, it's, it's an interesting one. It's, can you explain the difference in baptisms, uh, meaning infant and believers? Can you explain the difference in baptisms, meaning infant and believers? Sure. So the um, I actually wrote a overly long, boring document on this, <laughs> folks. <laughs> I have a habit of writing overly long, boring documents for folks who really want to jump into theology, uh-huh. um, and so I can always pass that along. Um, yeah, there's there's two major. Actually, I would say there's three major ways, but we'll break it for this for purposes today into two. There's two major ways within Protestantism or the Evangelical Church in at large to think about when is the right time to get baptized. So in our story in Acts chapter nine, after Saul believed in Jesus, he was baptized. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that pattern is what I believe we see all through the New Testament, which, and we call that believer's baptism. It's where a person believes. Um, and then after they've believed in Jesus Christ, then they're baptized as a result of that. Um, we call that believer's baptism. Then there's uh, infant baptism or pedo baptism is what it's oftentimes called. And pedo baptism is, uh, uh, is where you take infants and you baptize them. And those two baptisms in some way have some overlap of what they mean and in other ways are drastically different. Both camps are trying to take all the biblical text into consideration and trying to be faithful to what the text says. Both camps um, are not trying to like form their force, their own opinion on things. Um, And so they're both biblical ways of trying to interpret all the passages on baptism. I would say overwhelmingly and park would stand overwhelmingly believers baptism, in my opinion, is the very clear, um, correct way to interpret what baptism is for. And I'll explain why in a second. Um, but with that said, um, some amazing, great, respected, like I think of guys like R.C. Sproul, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, wow, unbelievable guys who are great minds are, are looking at this text and arrive at children's and infant baptism. I disagree with them, but I respect their position. Yeah. Um, and I would separate that from the Roman Catholic baptism. That's a whole separate conversation. So in infant baptism, what people are saying is, is basically infant baptism is seen as a continuation of the sign of circumcision in the Old Testament. Circumcision was given to infants, and it was a sign that basically um, outwardly reflected that you were a part of the covenant family of faith. Mm-hmm. And so you, in, you, you circumcised uh, children in the Old Testament, uh, recognizing that those children might grow up to be 
rebels. They might grow up to be, you know, who knows what they're going to do in their life. Um, but as they're growing up, they're part of this family. You, you, you see the outward marking on them as we, you're part of us. Uh, it's not necessarily now in, and in the old Testament, there were times where they said, look, I'm looking for a circumcision of the heart, not just the external circumcision. So it was never supposed to be like, that's the sign that you're saved. Yeah. It was always supposed to be welcome to the community. Mm-hmm. Infant baptism sees it kind of similar to that. Um, there's a few other passages they might go to, uh, which again, like in the New Testament, there's a, there's twice where it says their house, uh, someone was baptized and their household along with them. And yeah. so their argument is, well, there were probably infants in the household that got baptized. And you could just as easily say there probably weren't infants in the household that got baptized. Like to me, that's not an argument, mm-hmm. um, but it's one that's commonly used. Um, but really the argument is it's a continuation of the concept of circumcision. And so we baptize infants to kind of picture them as part of the family. But then later on, they, they still have to make their own confession of faith to be a believer. This is not like they're a Christian because they got baptized when they were infants. Yeah. You're a Christian once you believe. Believer's baptism, what we believe is, no, that doesn't make sense. The, the whole, everything we see in the New Testament shows us that believers, bat, like, be, you believe and then you get baptized. Every person that's ever baptized in the New Testament that we know of mm-hmm. was, they believe, and then they're baptized. There's no examples of an infant or someone who's not yet a believer getting baptized. Yeah. The meaning of baptism, the entire meaning of it is that you've gone from death to life. You're, you're under the water in death. Up to lot of you're raised to life. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a picture of our union with Christ, and so mm-hmm. from the meaning of it to all the examples we see in it, um, I would even go so far as to say there's no clear indication that it's supposed to be directly connected to circumcision. There's one verse that loosely connects it, but it, that's not the point of that verse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't think we should be seeing it as a continuation of circumcision in any way. Um, so that's where Parkway lands on believers' baptism. Um, what we normally say for folks is if you've gone through kind of an infant baptism, we would really challenge you to study the word of God and, and do that alongside a park pastor to kind of help kind of navigate the different texts and the different arguments and, uh, and see what the Lord, how the Lord might speak fresh into your life. Um, but we definitely have a deep respect for folks who come out of a, a pedo-baptist, uh, infant Baptist background, uh, but we yeah. do have our own convictions on that. Yeah, yeah, man, good. That was a, a good summary. Um, I feel like, at least experientially, in terms of like how how the different practices the shape us, the way that they disciple us. One of the things I really appreciate about believers' baptism is that it it like kind of it leads you to this understanding of your own conversion. It like it. I think that's one of the best things that it does for us in shaping us is that prior to Jesus, I was dead in my trespasses. It, it gets at all everything that you were talking about in the sermon. I feel like baptism is like given to us and designed in order to shape our understanding of our conversion. Really, yeah, yeah. In a, in a sense, it's kind of like a stone of remembrance. You know what I mean? Like that's right. It's that's this right. moment in your life where you yeah. look back and you say, "Look at what God's done in my life." My <laughs> baptism. Actually, the historic language for that is not stone of remembrance, but the historic language for baptism and for sacraments um, is that they're signs and seals. And that idea of it being a sign, it's an outward sign of an inward reality. But the seal is this idea that it, it's, um, it's not making anything authentic. It doesn't have that power. You're already authentic. But it's this, it's this layer on it that says to the entire watching world, this has already been declared authentic. 
Like we, we look inside and it, it's both to you as well as a believer saying, man, like my church family is looking in on the faith inside of me and what God's done in my life. And yeah. they're, they're sealing this on me as well. So in that sense, it's kind of like a stone of remembrance. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Well, Rafe, uh, thank you so much for making the time. I always appreciate having you on the show and uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Trev. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Also, if you have any questions you'd like us to discuss in an upcoming episode, go ahead and send those in. You can email us at podcast at parkcommunitychurch.org or just drop a comment wherever you happen to be listening. We'd love to see more about what you're wanting to hear about. So thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode.